Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. Uh, my name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church in Hemet, California, and I'm joined today by Mark Hogan. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too, brother. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I think we first uh, discussed the idea a couple months back, and uh, I've been anticipating this. I'm glad yeah. to finally be doing it. Uh, Mark is a recent graduate from Westminster Seminary, California, and he's currently looking to engage in church planting efforts. Um, Mark, I'll have you tell us about yourself in just a moment, uh, but I thought it would be best to explain the purpose of this episode from the outset. Um, Mark has an interesting testimony uh, that I would like for him to share with you all. Uh, certainly, we want to hear about how it is that he came to faith in Christ. That's by f- far the most important aspect of his testimony. But but this episode will eventually come to focus upon his transition. I, I didn't know what else to call it, Mark. Uh, conversion, that sounded like too strong of language or something <laughs> like that. But, but his trans- transition from paedo-baptist to credo-baptist convictions during – I think it was during your final year at seminary. Am I correct in that? It, it was. It was during my third and final year. Okay. And uh, I thought I should probably define these terms for the listener before going on. Uh, a paedo-baptist is one who believes that the waters of baptism should be applied to infants. Uh, Reformed paedo-baptists would reserve baptism for the children of believers only, uh, but nevertheless, they would apply the waters of baptism to to children, to infants. Um, a credo-baptist believes that it is only those who have made a profession of faith who should be baptized. Um, I think Reformed Baptists would really want to emphasize that it needs to be a credible profession of faith. The person would need to demonstrate that they understand the the gospel and uh, show evidence that indeed uh, their faith is true. Uh, so, pedo is referring to infants. Credo is, is referring to those who profess faith in Christ, and it is these who are to be to, who are to be baptized. Um, as I was saying, Mark grew up in a Pado Baptist tradition and attended a Pado Baptist seminary, but has since come to a Credo Baptist uh, point of view. Um, I've, as a pastor, been wanting to provide some teaching on this subject for a while now, and when I heard Mark's testimony, I thought it would be good to to interview him uh, for two reasons. One. I know, Mark, that you've worked through this doctrine thoroughly, uh, and two, it seems to me that you've done so in a very um, meaningful way, uh, being very personally invested into this uh, this subject. And so here's the plan we've established. Uh, we will, Lord willing, uh, record not one but three episodes on this subject. In this first episode, I've asked Mark to share his story, and then afterwards he and I will labor together to explain the Pado-Baptist position as thoroughly and as fairly as we can, and that might seem like a really strange thing for a couple of Credo-Baptists to do, um, but I'm really convicted that that it's only right that we attempt to fairly represent those who disagree with us and with whom we disagree before moving on uh, to critiquing that view. Uh, I think it's the Christianly thing to do, right? These are brothers and sisters in Christ who hold to the Pado position. And I think it's important that we fairly represent them. Uh, In the second episode, we're going to turn to critique the Pado position. Uh, The question for Mark will be, where did you begin to notice inconsistencies in the Pado system? And in the third episode, we will give a positive presentation of the Credo Baptist or the Reformed Baptist position 
on baptism that both he and I share in common. So that's the plan. I'm very interested in, in this. I'm excited about it. I hope the listener is too. Um, hopefully, we're not the only guys on the planet, Mark, who who think this is uh, you know fun and exciting stuff to talk about and very important stuff to talk about. Um, but Mark, I'm wondering, could you just take a moment and tell us about tell us about your family so that we can get to know you better? Yes. So I grew up in Washington State in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Uh, I was born in Kirkland, Washington, uh, and was born into a Christian. Uh, home, born into uh, parents who were Christians, who grew up in the Christian Reformed Church and uh, joined an OPC in Linwood, Washington. That's where I was baptized as an infant um, after I was born. And I was in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church up until I was in fifth grade. And then uh, we transitioned my family and I transitioned into the United Reformed Church, which is a more conservative version of the Christian Reformed Church. So, like I said, my mom and dad uh, were Christians. They brought me up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, prayed for me, called me to faith, and I'm very grateful for uh, their parenting of me and uh, my siblings. I have a brother and a sister, sister who lives in Arizona, brother who lives in Washington, close to my my parents as well. Uh, I'm married. I met my wife, Christine, at Providence Christian College in Pasadena, California. Uh, my wife grew up in Orange County and uh, came to Providence Christian College in her second semester of her first year, and that's where we met and got married after our time at Providence after graduation, actually five days after graduation. And uh, we had our first child, Judah Hogan, um, in June of last year. I believe it was June 13. I always get it mixed up between June 13 or 14. I can't quite ever get that straight. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's basically a short, very short version of upbringing and, uh, and my family. Cool. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, you better get that date down. I think you know it'll it'll <laughs> it'll it'll grow more natural to you in time. I guess I always there have a hard time remembering the year that my children were born for some reason. Okay. That, that, that requires some math on my yeah. part. Um, yeah. Where have you been over the past year, uh, and and where are you planning to go? I mean, you graduated from seminary. It's been about a year now, right? Since you've graduated from Westminster. Yeah. So I graduated in the latter part of May from Westminster Seminary, California, last year. And my wife and I and son moved to Anchorage, Alaska in August of last year to do an internship at Anchorage Reformed Presbyterian Fellowship in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, one of the faculty members' dad, uh, his dad, Josh Vanney's dad, is a minister up in Anchorage, and he was looking for an intern to come. So before I came to Credo Baptist Convictions, there was already an agreement uh, that I would serve a 10-month internship up in Anchorage, and I uh, did not want to, simply because of the change in position on baptism, uh, not fulfill the obligations that I had already committed myself to. So uh, it was wonderful being up in Anchorage for the past 10 months. Uh, we're finished now. I'm actually in Washington right now visiting family and with plans now to go to Valley City, North Dakota, to be a church planter. Valley City is about an hour uh, west of Fargo, which is, I believe, the biggest city in North Dakota. 
And my wife and I are very excited about this opportunity. It seems like a very strategic uh, location to have a church plant, and we're excited to drop into the community and um, and begin our work there. That is really exciting, and I think at some point it'd be fun to interview you about that uh, that work, and uh, so that we can learn more about it. Actually, we're going to be up in that area for the general assembly, aren't we, for Arbka? Um, next yes, year. it's it's great timing. <laughs> yeah, really so nice. uh, we've we've uh, basically committed ourselves to five to seven years of work there, and uh, we're excited to have some of the delegates to the General Assembly hopefully come out to Valley City and see the work that's taking place. So we're hoping to make it out to Valley City in uh, probably the latter part of July, um, possibly August. We're not exactly sure about the housing situation right now. So there's still a lot of details that have to be filled in. Wonderful. That's very exciting. We'll be praying for that. Um, for that Thank work. you. How'd you come to faith in Christ, Mark? Yes. So I struggled with uh, many indwelling sins, as most people do, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, throughout my life. And uh, I made profession of faith when I was 17 years old in the URC in Linden. Um, looking back on that time, I, I think I had a cognitive, intellectual understanding of the Christian faith and could articulate many aspects of you know, why Jesus had to come into this world, how he was both God and man, the doctrines of grace, how I was a, how I was a sinner and, and saved, you know, monergistically uh, by God alone, sovereignly. Um, I could explain the Trinity and things like that. So I, I think I had a very cognitive and intellectual understanding of the faith. I do not believe that when I was 17, I trusted in Jesus Christ for my salvation. I think that came in my freshman year of college, sitting in a Bible class where we're talking about the New Covenant in Jeremiah. And I realized that for a long time, I had really trusted in my trust. I had tried to have faith sort of in my faith, uh, rather than seeing that faith is an instrument by which I take hold of Jesus Christ and his objective promises to myself. And so I would kind of classify it as something of an, you know, a spiritual awakening, being uh, born again, uh, coming to realize that the Holy Spirit was, was, was working within me and, and uh, that I did not have to have some sort of um, high emotion uh, but I could tr- – not trusting in that high emotion, but trusting in Jesus Christ's sacrifice alone for me and saying, you know, I'm so weary with thinking to myself, okay, do I really believe? Do I not believe? I don't know because, you know, I, I know cognitively about the Christian faith. Have I really believed? Do I really love Jesus? Uh, sort of being freed from all of that through talking about the new covenant and realizing that I could just, you know, put my arms around Jesus uh, – put my arms around his promises and say, Lord, I believe, uh, help my unbelief. Amen. And so I think I think freshman year is really when I came to understand that I needed to stop trusting on in in my own ability to, to, to do it or to feel it or to, uh, you know, those sorts of things, uh, but to truly trust in the objective historical 
redemption that Jesus offered uh, 2,000 years ago. Were you catechized growing up? I was. I was catechized really well. And I am forever grateful to the elders at the United Reformed Church in Linden. Uh, you know, I went through the three forms of unity. So in, in the Dutch continental tradition, you have the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort. And throughout my high school years, we went through the Heidelberg, we went through the Belgic, we went through the Canons of Dort. And then in my senior year, we went through Louis Burkhoff's Manual of Christian Doctrine. And uh, that was the pastor teaching us that. So I was well catechized, and I am very grateful that I I had that cognitive understanding of the faith so that Mm -hmm. when it did become uh, uh, a trust, a true trust in Jesus Christ, that all of those things that I cognitively knew became very, very precious and very, very beautiful to me. Rather than just being able to explain it, it was now – uh, a love for it. Hmm. That's wonderful, brother. It's it's interesting for me uh, to listen to you uh, share your testimony of how you came to faith in Christ. It's so different from the experience that a lot of people here at Emmaus, including myself, have had, hmm. to where I think a lot of folks in our congregation, um, they, they knew what it was to trust in Jesus, to, you mm-hmm. know, to have that aspect of, of the faith, but had lacked in the doctrinal instruction. And I see. find themselves kind of working now to supplement that. Uh, so it's almost exactly the reverse experience for you that that you have the <laughs> doctrines, you have the doctrines, but lacked lacked trust until uh, right uh, a little bit later in life. So yeah, that's very yeah. encouraging. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. It, so that was at about the age of uh, what did you say twenty or so? Uh, it 19? would be eight, uh, eighteen or nineteen. Eighteen or nineteen. I would, I, I would say eighteen. Okay. And then when did you begin to sense a call to the ministry? Yes. So um, actually when I had made profession of faith, you know, you go before the elders and they they, um, ask you uh, about your faith. They they also want to know what you know intellectually. Uh, And uh, they encouraged me at that time to think about the possibility of going into pastoral ministry. And that was was humbling. but I wasn't. I was not interested in that. When I when I went to Providence Christian College, I was doing a communications emphasis with a liberal arts degree, um, and I was not uh, enjoying the classes very much. Um, lacked energy, lacked passion for the subject. And uh, once once that um, trust took place in freshman year. Uh, I didn't immediately switch to the Bible program, but ultimately I did switch to the Bible program. I think it was sophomore year when I did emphasis in uh, emphases in the biblical languages and biblical and theological studies. And although I didn't want to be a pastor at that time, uh, I loved the classes so much. I felt like I grew by leaps and bounds in college, mostly due to the uh, teacher, Dr. Scott Swanson, who was the only Bible teacher at Providence. So he's teaching all of these classes on hermeneutics, how to interpret scripture, on the Old and the New Testaments, Pauline epistles, the Psalms, all, I mean, all of these things. I feel like I was growing by leaps and bounds. It was really in my junior year of college when I began to realize that I really enjoyed uh, talking about the gospel and uh, conversing with other people about the gospel. And I 
thought in my mind, you know, maybe, maybe this is a call from God on my life to uh, become a minister. Um, and so I prayed about it. Um, and I talked with my elders in Linden, and they could sense that the Lord was calling me to the ministry. Um, so it was confirmed by my own personal desire, and it was confirmed by the church. And uh, I decided that I would go to seminary. Um, some, I think it was second semester of my junior year that I would go to seminary and uh, decided on Westminster. How did you end up there? Seminary. What made you choose that seminary? So my minister in Linden, Washington, Pastor Chris Gordon, had gone there, mm -hmm. and he spoke very, very highly of the school uh, in terms of equipping him with all of the tools that he needed to be able to exegete the scriptures and be able to have a long-lasting ministry uh, that continued strong you know, throughout the years. So that was a huge influence. Also, the proximity of the school to Providence um, was very close, about two, two and a half hours to the south of Providence. And then my in-laws live in Orange County. So there was family that was close. Um, my minister was telling me that uh, this school was really good and that I should go. My Bible professor, Dr. Scott Swanson, said uh, Westminster is a really great education. And then this was pretty cool, actually. We got um, students from Providence got to go to the Westminster conferences that happen every January for uh -huh. free. Yeah. And so I went to like four conferences and got to be on campus, got to hear the faculty talk. Um, there was one particular conference on the unfolding mystery of God's redemptive plan that really confirmed in my mind that I really wanted to go to Westminster. It was seeing Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of the types and prophecies um, and, and people, you know, prophet, priests, and kings of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and realizing how all that richness was going to be there at Westminster, I thought, this is the, this is the seminary for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. And would you tell us a bit more about when it was that you came to Credo Baptist Convictions? I know that it was in at some point in your uh, third year at, at seminary, but maybe mm -hmm. describe a little bit more about that process to us. Yes. Uh, I had never really questioned my ideas about infant baptism up to my third year in seminary. Um, it was actually sitting in a preaching class. We were talking about times when we would be preaching that wouldn't be your normal Monday, uh, no, sorry, Sunday uh, services, um, but uh, would be times like when we were, when we would preach like at a wedding mm -hmm. or at a funeral or or an infant baptism sermon. Um, so while we were talking about the infant baptism sermons, one of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church students uh, said, we, we do not uh, want to treat our children like second-class citizens in the church. And another OPC student agreed, and then, and then the, the, the teacher agreed with that. And even with my, with my Pado-Baptist understanding at that time, I thought, that's, that's a very odd statement to make, considering the fact that it was upon my profession of faith where the minister declared to me, you are now welcome to full communion hmm. with the people of God. 
And uh, I remember actually talking to a Reformed Baptist student after the class saying, you know, that statement strikes me as uh, federal vision leaning. Maybe it's I, – I know that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church students did not mean it in that sense, but it, it, it sounds sympathetic with that position. Can you define that briefly? Uh, <laughs> that's a, a huge federal question. vision? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, the, the, I think the, the pinpoint – the most important thing here from mm-hmm. a federal vision perspective would be that there is a temporary election mm-hmm. of uh, infants who are brought into the church through baptism. And this temporary election uh, can be lost, but because there is that temporary election, there's this idea that uh, the children should be brought to the Lord's table, mm-hmm. that they are full uh, – communing members. So there's, from a federal vision perspective, according to my understanding, there would be no distinction uh, between a communicant member who's able to partake of the Lord's Supper and a non-communing member uh, who who is not allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so from the time that they're born, from the time that they can eat bread, uh, they are given the, the Lord's Supper. And it's almost viewed as something of a Gnostic idea that we would not give our children the, the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't know. Did, did that make that clear? It did. I just wanted to make sure the terms were defined for the listener, and I think you just okay. made it very clear, so I appreciate that. All right, yeah. So so, uh, so that that statement by those, by those OPC students sort of caused some cognitive dissonance in my mind. Uh, you know, what was I as a non a communicant member brought into the church through baptism, graciously, you know, believing I was graciously brought into the confines of the church. Um, but yet, well, I would never say I was a second-class citizen. Um, I wasn't a full uh, member. I wasn't able to partake and have the full benefits of communion with the people of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that caused cognitive, cognitive dissonance and pushed me to explore the issue and you know I read hundreds and hundreds of pages on both sides of the issue and uh, ultimately came out on the credo baptist side. Hmm. Yeah, I have to ask brother what what did that um what did that decision cost you um you know to to make that transition? Uh, what sort of impact did it yeah. have upon your life, you know? Uh th- I would say the greatest impact it had upon my life was not going into the denomination – oh, actually, I should say federation. The URC is, mm-hmm. a, is a, considered a federation of churches. Um, not going into the federation of churches where I had all the connections. Um, in, in seminary, you are trying to establish connections with different churches so that you can receive a call after seminary. And all my relationships with ministers were basically in the United Reformed Church. So that's where I was planning on going. Um, what did it cost me other, other than that? I I don't think it cost me very much. I don't want to sound like a martyr. I don't think I'm a martyr. I don't feel like a martyr uh, for the cause or anything like that. Um, I actually see a lot of benefits of coming out from a, a Pado Baptist perspective into a Credo Baptist perspective. But that would be the thing that cost me the most was the all of the relationships that I had formed in the URC, mm-hmm. in the United Reformed Church through seminary. Yeah, how did your home church take it, brother? 
They took it very well, and praise the Lord. I I had heard you know horror stories about Reformed Baptists being put under discipline, and I I wasn't quite expecting that. I just didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote my, to my elders, they were very gracious. I wrote them a long seven-page you know letters explaining uh, the convictions that I had come to, and how I didn't think I could affirm the things that the infant baptism. Uh, forms uh, state that parents have to agree to in front of the church. Um, my wife was pregnant at the time mm-hmm. with our son, which caused an, an added impetus to study the issue because at the end it was like, look, I'm either going into the United Reformed Church or I'm going somewhere else and my son's coming. And so this the, the issue is very at the forefront of my mind. But my home church took it very graciously they released my membership papers to affiliate with Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Vista, California, very close to your own church in Hemet. Mm-hmm. And they would not, um, they would not release my papers to affiliate with a uh, uh, with an with another fraternal relation church. So the URC is in what they call fraternal relations with all Napark churches, North American Presbyterian and Reformed. Uh, congregations. Um, so they they could not uh, send my papers to Vista, but they did release my papers to affiliate. So it's kind of a fine distinction that they were making. But I understand why they had to do that, and the transition was very peaceful. You were baptized there at the church in Vista, correct? Yes. So after my son was 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 born, and my in laws were able to come down and hold him while while we were baptized. Uh, we were praise the Lord. Uh, we received true baptism um, in I yeah I think it was the month of June actually about two or three weeks after uh, my wife had 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 our, our our son Judah. So we were baptized at Christ Reformed uh, Baptist Church in Vista, and uh, Jason Walter preached a wonderful baptism sermon that uh, was very enriching to my faith, and it was enriching to my wife's faith. And uh, we're so grateful. I don't mean this pejoratively from to Pado Baptist, but I'm so grateful that I can remember the, the, the time that I was plunged beneath the baptismal waters. Amen. Well, it's very encouraging, brother. I, I really appreciate you sharing uh, that, that story, that testimony uh, with us. Uh, very encouraging on a number of different levels. I'm sure those who are listening to it are going to get different things out of it depending upon their background. But right. I, I really do appreciate that. Um, I do wonder what your interaction with Credo Baptist, Baptist uh, mm-hmm. was like prior to you coming to Baptist Convictions, even, you know, and that might even include the time immediately preceding your so-called conversion, uh, you, you know, what, what, what sort of encounter did you have with Baptists or arguments from uh, those who were of the Baptist persuasion as a Pado baptist Yeah, so I didn't have a lot growing up. Uh, I didn't have a lot of interaction growing up with Reformed Baptists, but when I got into college, there were several Reformed Baptists who were at Providence Christian College, and uh, we had some discussions, but I, I think... Not all paedobaptists do this, but I think many do. When they have those conversations with Reformed Baptists, what they do is 
after those conversations, they go back to their sources and they, you know, I, I went back to the case for covenant infant baptism and would read some of the articles and sort of reinstate the things that that I believed about baptism already. Uh, and even when people would send me things from a Reformed Baptist perspective, I don't remember ever reading anything before seminary. And it was actually two Reformed Baptist students at seminary who really helped me as I thought through the issue. One was uh, Dabney Olgeen from uh, Illinois. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's uh, serving at a church in Illinois. And then Michael Beatty. Do you know Michael? Yeah, I know Michael too. Okay, great. Uh, Yeah, Michael Beatty. He's serving at a church in in Arizona. So they, they were always very willing to talk about this entire issue and, uh, you know, to beat it to death with me, really, <laughs> to mm-hmm. beat the issue to death, uh, because, you know, I wanted to talk about it a lot. I was going through all of these things. Um, so, yeah, I would say that was the interaction that I had with Baptists before uh, before I actually became a Credo Baptist. Mm. Um, I remember sitting down at a lunch with Dabney and Michael and talking through some of these things, and they actually told me, you know, you sound like a cradle Baptist. Um, so uh, for, for whatever it's worth, the, the arguments that you're making against paedo Baptism right now that you've been thinking about, uh, you sound like you belong in our circles. And uh, that's ultimately where I ended up. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, I was – I was thinking back about some of the arguments that I've heard from Credo Baptists against Pado Baptists, and, and most of mm-hmm. the arguments that I've been exposed to are, to be quite honest, they're they're rather, rather shallow, um, mm-hmm. and I'm concerned about that a bit. I wonder if most Pado Baptists, if that if that's not the only thing that they encounter, you know, are, are these kind of shallow arguments that really don't ever get to the heart. Mm. of the mm-hmm. issue with them. Therefore, these arguments are just quite easily deflected, and really, that's why we're producing these podcasts in the way that we are so right, that we right. present a robust um, uh, you, you know uh, presentation of the pedo position and then come back and, and critique mm-hmm. that a bit but what about those what about the arguments that credo baptists typically level against pedo baptists um yeah what have I, you encountered I've, right um you know I, i've heard i've heard some from this is from my perspective, my opinion. I I've heard some I think unfair accusations from Baptists about Pado Baptists mm. and c- certain things that sound very polemical and don't do a good job uh, interacting with the arguments that Pado Baptists make and uh, and extending the conversation in a gracious way. Um, there, there's sometimes I've come into contact with the idea that Reformed people, Reformed Presbyterian people hold to baptism because of their tradition. And it's true, infant baptism is a tradition, but whether that's held simply because it's a tradition or not um, is is the real question. So I, I think that when Baptists say, you know, infant baptism is just a tradition for most people in, in Reformed churches, that's unhelpful. I think it's too general. Um, you know, when I was a paedo-baptist, I certainly had reasons to believe what I believed from a biblical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, uh, there's this idea that um, infant baptism 
is in in reformed and presbyterian circles is really just a, a, a the last vestige of roman catholicism that's hanging out there mm-hmm. um i maybe i'm sympathetic to that in some ways now that i'm a baptist but i i don't think that's really a fair argument either uh from the very beginning when the reformers were trying to defend infant baptism they did so on grounds that were nowhere near what the roman uh the Roman Catholic Church, you know, was saying to defend it. Right. So they, Zwingli, Calvin, they really were trying to um, defend it from a covenantal perspective, from God's gracious covenantal dealings um, with Abraham. Yeah, it's it's interesting when I find myself talking about this issue with people. On the one hand, I critique the Pado position, but on the other hand, I find myself also standing up in defense of our Reformed Pado Baptist brothers, uh, mm-hmm. and I find myself saying quite often. The paedo-baptism of the Reformed is not the same as the, the paedo-baptism of the Roman Catholic tradition. They are not Amen. at all the same thing, and so do not make this mistake. Yes, they both baptize infants. Uh, it looks the same on the surface, but the reasons right. for doing so are, are quite different. Quite different. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I've also heard people say, you know, if Reformed people were truly consistent, they would all be federal vision. Um. Again, maybe I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, I understand where the Baptists are coming from, <laughs> but I don't. I don't think that's fair either. Uh, I don't think that's fair to say. You know, I had a professor at seminary named R. Scott Clark. Um, he, certainly not a federal visionist. If you've ever been to the Heidelblog, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> though vehemently a Pado Baptist, and uh, I, I do think that there is a logical argumentation yeah. whereby you can be a paedo-baptist and not a federal visionist. I grew up in a church that was not uh, federal visionist in any way, um, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, I would also say this. Um, reformed people, it's often thought, baptize their infants because they believe in presumptive regeneration. You're going to have to define that too, brother. Okay, okay. So uh, when the child is baptized, the idea is that I am to count this child as a Christian until he proves that he's a covenant breaker. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, that is true. That is true in some Reformed argumentation. But that is not true in all Reformed or Presbyterian argumentation um, when it comes to infant baptism, some people say, yes, you know, we, we are presuming the regeneration of our children because to separate the sacrament from regeneration is not appropriate. Now, I would say as, as a Baptist, in some ways, I would agree with that. Um, but other, other Reformed and Presbyterian people uh, say there, we do not presume on what God is going to do. Now, we have hope. We have a hope in the promises of God because God makes promises to our, to ourselves and to our children, um, that this will come to pass. Um, but you know, for example, Meredith Klein is one uh, Presbyterian theologian who does not believe that uh, we ought to presume regeneration of our children because Esau and uh, Jacob, you know, were both partakers of the covenantal sign. Um, but the promise was only given to Jacob. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is one of the points uh, where it's a little bit harder to 
to to talk about it because there there are many many ways in which people defend infant baptism and presumptive regeneration is one of those but it's a mistake to say that all reformed or presbyterian people baptize their children because they presume regeneration so to put it another way to look at it from mm-hmm. a slightly different angle those who really believe in presumptive regeneration might might not call their children to faith and repentance as strongly as those who deny it. Would that be a, f- a fair statement? I, I, I think so. I mean, there is this idea in, in uh, certain Reformed and Presbyterian churches that we do not evangelize our children. We, we nurture them in the grace that's already been given to them and the promises that are already given to them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the language makes it sound uh, as if all Reformed or Presbyterian people might believe in presumptive regeneration. Um, but, uh, but again, that is not the case. For example, um, the church I come from right, yeah. has a certain hope that, uh, 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 that children of believers will ultimately become Christians, you know, exercise faith, um, but not the not any sort of absolute certainty, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you were called to faith uh, quite regularly in your upbringing, and uh, it was, yes, it was, okay, that's wonderful. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, praise I the mean, Lord for that. Um, right. Yeah, and I'm going to do that with my son too. I'm going to call him to faith. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Amen. Right. So, I think it's good that these things were stated. It's it's it is important. Um, for Baptists to acknowledge that there is a certain amount of plausibility mm. to the argumentation that Pado Baptists mm-hmm. make. I mean, the, I, you know, there, there's a reason they believe what they believe, and we should be right. respectful of that, uh, respectful enough to listen and to understand why it is that they hold to their position. Yeah. Amen. And uh, I think when people are looking at the issue coming from church traditions, in which they have so separated the Old Testament from the New mm-hmm. that they and then and then and then they they start to hear these arguments uh, for for pedo baptism based upon the continuity of the covenant of grace, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, they begin to think like, "Wow, like the Old Testament is so wonderful for for strengthening my faith in a way that I've never even realized." Mm-hmm. And and so so maybe there's this. Um, they're coming to grips with the fact that the Old Testament and the New Testament are that there is more continuity than they realized, and then they they sort of latch onto all of the argumentation from a Baptist perspective a little bit too quickly. Right. Well, that's good. I think that's very helpful. I think now would be the time, probably, to turn the corner then and to. Um begin to address uh, the, the Reformed Pado-Baptist position and, and uh, mm. for me to ask the question, how do they argue for right. infant baptism? You know, How do they argue for um, that practice from the Holy Scriptures? These are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that the Word of God is um, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, that it is clear. Mm-hmm. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who, who believe these things. So how do they make a case for their paedo-baptist position? Good. Yes. So as, as I said, um, Reformed paedo-baptists are not monolithic in their defense of infant baptism. 
Um, that's been acknowledged by Baptists. That's been acknowledged by Presbyterians. You know, Benjamin Warfield, uh, or was it Louis Burkhoff, who said, you know, we've not all argued in the same way, but that shows its legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the outset, the argument is not about just a few proof texts, although there are texts that are very, very important. Um, the arguments of both Pado and Credo Baptists don't necessarily, necessarily hinge on the silence of the New Testament, but uh, there are common factors that you can decipher from all Pado Baptist argumentation from a Reformed and Presbyterian perspective. Right. Uh, and the first thing I would say is the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, the Abrahamic covenant is viewed from a Reformed Pado-Baptist perspective as the paradigmatic manifestation of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. So uh, God comes to Abraham and he makes this covenant of grace with him. And into this covenant of grace, uh, he graciously includes Abraham's children into this. Um, so it's it's very interesting when God says that he wants Abraham to, um, to circumcise himself. Uh, Romans 4.11 states that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Mm-hmm. And so, Pedro Baptist say, see, circumcision is a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. Now, this same sign that was given to Abraham, uh, from a Baptist perspective, you, you, we wouldn't even think that there would even be a possibility that he would give it to the children if it was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. But God, in graciously including children into this Abrahamic covenant, into this Old Testament paradigm for the covenant of grace, includes the children uh, by giving them circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant as well. So, so the key here is to understand that from the Pado-Baptist perspective, the Abrahamic covenant is substantially the covenant of grace. Uh, yes. It is substantially we, the covenant of grace. And the thing that they are noticing is that included in this covenant, it's not only those who believe, but but Abraham who had faith and his offspring and his offspring. Mm-hmm. They begin there. Exactly. Uh, I actually have Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology open, and this is – one of his points on page 633, he says, this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is still in force and is, and here's the, here's the key words here, is essentially identical uh, with the new covenant of the present dispensation. So, and by present dispensation, he just means the, the New Testament period of, of, of you know, the, uh, the, the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the Abrahamic covenant is in substance the same covenant offering the same grace through faith in God's promise of the Messiah that God also brings these children of Abraham into the sphere of. And, and it's not just uh, in the Old Testament that we see that. 
But Paedobaptists say, one, when we look at the New Testament, we can decipher the exact same lines of reasoning, for example, in, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The New Testament highlights the Abrahamic promises in Acts 2.39 when Peter says, the promise is to you, but not just to you. The promise is to you and your and to your children, right? And so, so what Pato Baptists do is they say, look, this is like the same language of Genesis seventeen mm-hmm. uh, to you and to your seed. And Peter is repeating that fundamental Abrahamic promise. Uh, promise, excuse me. The promise is to you uh, and your literal seed to your seed. And uh, you know, we could also say further proof that the Abrahamic covenant is in effect in the New Testament comes from Luke 19, where Jesus uh, calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham or a child of Abraham, mm-hmm. uh, whichever one it may be. Um, so the, in, in the New Testament, the church is called the Israel of God mm-hmm. by Paul. End of Galatians. It, yeah. Yep. Yeah. In Galatians six sixteen. 16. Um, and from a Paedo-Baptist perspective, mm-hmm. it is highly inappropriate to think that children would be excluded as covenant members. Um, I mean, if you think about it, if the Abrahamic covenant is the paradigmatic manifestation of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, to say that children of believers now are excluded from the covenant community would actually be to say that the new covenant is not as good or as gracious as the one given to Abraham. Now, Hebrews says that the new covenant is a better covenant. So if it's a better covenant, how could it be less gracious in its dealings with the covenant people? But in fact, uh, in the Pauline epistles, um, Pato Baptist will say, look, we see Paul addressing children of believers uh, in Ephesians 6, in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Um, Paul addresses, similarly to the commandments, children, obey your parents. Um, and this is the first commandment with with a promise. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea, to, to, just to restate and summarize, is Abrahamic covenant is the paradigm. Uh, it is the paradigm of the covenant of grace and is in substance the same as the new covenant. And thus to exclude children from that covenant uh, of the new covenant would be less gracious than the Abrahamic would be. Mm-hmm. And the language they use is to say that the Abrahamic covenant is the same in substance as the the new covenant. It is the covenant of mm-hmm. grace, but it's a different external administration of it. And you know, to put it in really simple terms, it looks kind of different on the surface, mm-hmm. but inside, it's the same thing, right? That's that's perfect, um, right? Uh, substance administration, substantially the same covenant, but you know, there is progress. Uh, there is progress. Mm-hmm. When we read the Bible, there is progressive nature of God's work as you come closer and closer to uh, Jesus Christ coming and fulfilling the types and shadows. So the Abrahamic covenant, substantially the same, but in its administration, there are types and shadows Mm -hmm. that point to the fulfillment of uh, the new covenant. So exactly right, Joe, you have have the substance with 
just a different administration. Can I just say that myself being raised in a dispensational um, tradition, um, Mm -hmm. when I started to read on covenant theology – from a Reformed perspective, and I was reading at first Pado baptist presentations of it. It was so attractive to me mm. because of the continuity that, that they bring to the whole of the Bible. You know, for the first time for me, I was all of a sudden seeing, wow, this really is one book. It all fits together, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was very attractive um, to, to me, uh, having been raised in a dispensational kind of uh, tradition. And I don't want to mm. get into critiquing um, this view now. Uh, that's not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. But I could understand why Baptists, uh, when exposed to Reformed covenant theology, how they can sometimes be very quick to abandon ship and to say, <laughs> "Oh yeah, uh, I'm it's all in here." Very, know. it's. I think it's very attractive, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a little bit of a harder time uh, realizing where dispensationalists are coming from. I have to admit that, you know, I never had any dispensational leanings growing up by any means. Uh, so I have a little bit of a harder time understanding that, but I, I, I think you're right. I think that when there is this, look at the continuity, look at how Abraham is, this is from everybody's perspective, a paradigm figure for the righteousness that is by faith uh, alone mm-hmm. uh, in in Christ alone, according to both the Old and the New Testaments, and you begin to see how there's a lot of relationship that is there between promise and fulfillment, be- right. between type and anti-type, between shadow and and uh, you know the 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 fullness. Yeah. It really is a beautiful thing when you realize for the first time, my goodness, the gospel was there, you know, mm, in the days mm-hmm. of Abraham. You know, it was there. There was grace there. Um, it, it's it's um, just a yeah. wonderful moment when you when you realize that. But how do they reason then from here? Okay, you've established okay. this principle that for the Pado Baptist, um, the Abrahamic covenant is is very central. Um, it is viewed as being the same in substance as the new covenant. It is the covenant of grace. It equals the covenant mm-hmm. of grace. Different external administration, you've established that. But how then do they get to the idea that we should apply the waters of baptism to infants? Okay. So uh, stemming from what you just said, taking the Abrahamic covenant as the fulcrum of the covenant of grace, uh, you have this, this principle of hereditary right – that is pulled into the sphere of the covenant of grace. Um, and that includes seeing the continuity of both testaments, uh, the new Testament period. Okay. So that the, the idea of hereditary right is pulled into the new Testament time. And so you'll hear people saying children of believers are heirs of the covenantal promises and they have a right to the covenantal signs and seals of baptism, uh, just as Israelites, uh, Israelite children in the Old Testament. Um, so I have this quote here from the Directory of Public Worship of the Westminster Assembly, uh, and it states this. The promise is made to believers and their seed, and that the seed and posterity of the faithful born within the church have by their birth, interest in the covenant and right to the seal of it and to the outward privileges of the church under the gospel, no less than the children of Abraham in the time of 
the Old Testament. Okay, so you can see there the emphasis upon the Abrahamic covenant being the paradigm. Uh, it is Genesis 17 with the you and your seed principle. And this gives Christian children, uh, excuse me, Christians' children, Christian parents' children, uh, a right to baptism. Okay, so this is very important that the first birth, the first physical birth, brings a person into the sphere of the covenant of grace in the New Testament. So um, the infant baptism form that we used in the uh, URC, you can look this up in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnal in uh, the baptism form number three. It states that parents are to teach their children that they have been set apart by baptism as God's own children. So they're they're considered to be children of promise. Randy Booth has a book called Children of Promise, and he's not talking about um, uh, true Israelites. He's talking there about um, uh, infants of, of believers. So you have this idea that there is a hereditary or biological right to the covenant of grace. Of course, that could also be included with adopted children too. So there's not, you know, it's not like if only if you're bloodline do you get it? Um, but that is that's what's most often spoken of because obviously most people have not adopted uh, children. Incorporated into this this whole idea of the Abrahamic covenant, then and, the, and this biological principle, is this idea that circumcision and baptism function in. Almost not, not even in similar ways, although some would say similar ways, but it's, it's even to the extent of a complete replacement. And so the infant baptism form number two <laughs> of the United Reformed Church says since baptism has replaced circumcision, our children should be baptized as heirs of God's kingdom and of his covenant. So there's this understanding that baptism and circumcision um, share the same spiritual meaning of regeneration, relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, etc. And that means that continuity, the continuity of circumcision and baptism are stressed. Right. Um, now, of course, uh, the Paedo-Baptist will say there are there is progress, you know, from promise to fulfillment. For example, baptism isn't bloody. Uh, baptism is given to males and females rather than simply to uh, females. But here's here's the reasoning. Circumcision was given to infants in the Old Testament in the Abrahamic. Uh, number two, baptism succeeds in the place of circumcision in the New Testament. And therefore, baptism should be given to infants just as it was given to, just as circumcision was given to infants in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's clear. Um, I hope we're not making a bunch of Pado baptists as we uh, record this episode here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, just remember that we'll come back uh, over the next two times and uh, make some critiques of uh, of this argumentation. Sure. But the thing being illustrated here is they, they do have a reason for believing what they believe. They have a theological Amen. argument, and they're arguing primarily from the Old Testament and um, mm -hmm. stressing the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New. 
which we as Reformed Baptists would say, you know, amen, uh, mm-hmm. amen to, um, of course. Yeah, we, we see continuity as well. <laughs> we do. We articulate it differently. Right. Uh, we use different terminology. Uh, we don't stress the continuity um, quite as much as, as they mm-hmm. do. We see a little bit more discontinuity on this point, don't we? But, right. um, but, but again, it is important to realize that our Reformed, Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ have a reason for doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just tradition, yeah. as you said earlier. Okay, Right, and, and they really believe that, uh, I've read this in multiple authors, that any argument against infant baptism in the New could, in the same way, be argued against infant circumcision in the Old Testament. They really believe that. And, uh, and it is interesting that um, in, in Burkhoff's systematic theology, when he's, he's going through a lot of the confessional statements that are made about infant baptism from you know, the Heidelberg, from the Canons of Dort, from Be- the Belgic, and then he says, it will be observed that all of these statements are based – on the commandment of God to circumcise the children of the covenant, for in the last analysis, that commandment is the ground of infant baptism. So this is an extremely important point. If the tie between baptism and circumcision is broken, or or or, or uh, but not but not severed completely, of course. But if it if it is restructured and seen in light of the progressive nature. Not just in the sense that it's a non-bloody sign, but also the progress that comes after Jesus Christ. Um, You know, if if we do see, and I think there is a very good reason for seeing a lot of a lot of discontinuity between baptism and circumcision, then a lot of the polemic against Baptists um, doesn't stand doesn't stand up. Right. You know, I mentioned earlier that I think those who grew up in a dispensational sort of uh, background when they begin to notice the continuity between the Testaments are drawn to it. I think also um, those who grew up in church traditions where the children were kind of, you know, pushed to the side and sent off to Sunday school every Lord's Day, when mm. they begin to, some of them, when they begin to see the way that Pado baptists really value the family, you know, and, and mm. I mean, when you described mm-hmm. to me the way that you were catechized as a child, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's something very attractive to that, you know. Right. Uh, there, there's something very attractive about not wanting the children to feel as if they are second-class citizens, but let's bring mm-hmm. them in as a part of the church. Um, because indeed, the, the pedo position does tend to, uh, uh, or, or on the surface at least, it can seem to really value the family maybe more than the credo position can. Can you speak to that a mm. little bit in terms of the emphasis upon the family? Right, right. Um yeah, I, I I think there is more of a push in based on theological reasoning for catechesis of of children in Reformed and Presbyterian circles. Um, although I, I must say, being in Arca churches, I have heard a large emphasis upon bringing up children in the fear and instruction of God and catechizing them and making sure that they know the truths. That you, uh, as parents, um, believe as as you know as Christian parents. So I have had that emphasis in Reformed Baptist churches as well. But that being said, um, the infant Baptist view does say that the family is 
is a mysterious redemptive institution. Um, and God, throughout history, f- from Abraham and his family, and we can maybe say previously, uh, has always, Pato Baptists say, worked through families to pass on um, through that covenantal promise, salvation from generation to generation. And um, evidence of that, you know, is seen from our, from people's own eyesight, you know, as they look around at churches, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that are in the URC and you see the parents and you see the children, you see the grandparents all sitting together in church from Sunday to Sunday. Uh, that's appealing, um, no doubt. And, uh, you know, God is God, they say, to, to us and to our children. And the evidence of that is seen just because, hey, look, we're coming to church with our grandkids and our great-grandkids and et cetera. Um, but, uh, but thinking of a more theological, in a more theological way, you also have the emphasis throughout redemptive history on the familial institution. You know, Israel is called to teach the coming, de- uh, the coming generations about the covenant that God has made with them at Sinai, uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, have this word on, on, in, in, not just on your lips, but in your heart and talk about it from day to day. Um, and so from the, Pato Baptist perspective, this household principle, you'll hear that a lot, household principle is reiterated in the New Testament period in household baptisms. Now, as a Pato Baptist, you know exactly what the Baptist is going to shoot back right away, right? The Baptist is going to say, there's no clear proof that children slash infants, you know, were, uh, were members of, of, of the families that are being baptized um, in the New Testament. Um, as a Baptist now, I really do have some sympathy with that argumentation. But uh, I think it would do Baptists good to understand that from a Pato Baptist perspective, that fact doesn't really even matter. Right. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's really – it's the principle. I, I remember hearing uh, a faculty member from Westminster – actually, you can listen to this um, online. It's a debate between Tom Schreiner and uh, Dr. Van Drunen. Uh, Van Drunen. Um, Dr. Van Drunen says, uh, even if there weren't children in these families, he says, it's the principle that is there. It is the principle that we see throughout biblical history of whole families being ones that are set apart by God. Um, And so you start to look at uh, times when baptism is administered. In the New Testament, you know, and they say there are a substantial amount of times in the New Testament when it's a when it's a household baptism. In fact, if you sort of put all the examples together, infant uh, uh, excuse me, household baptisms um, really seem, from a Pado Baptist perspective, to outweigh the more individualistic baptisms. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I got some stuff to say about that. <laughs> but uh, so you take that family principle, family is a mysterious redemptive institution, mm-hmm. and you start to imply ca- um, covenantal categories to the family, and you and then you start to see all these places in the scriptures where this seems to line up in a way that would really, by inference, um, fit with the Pado baptist paradigm to reiterate a previous point about ethical exhortation of children in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to be clear, we as Credo baptists also acknowledge that God does work through families. Amen. Right, and that the children of believers are indeed 
in a privileged place, having been mm-hmm. born into a home where the gospel is present. I mean, they are, in a sense, sanctified. Uh, the New Testament uses that language. They are in a very privileged place to be in such a close proximity to the, to the, to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we believe that very strongly. Yes. Uh, but the Pado-Baptist, their argument is that not only are the children in a privileged place, they're in the covenant, Right. right. They're, in right. The, they're in the covenant of grace. Um, you know, they might parse that out a bit and use the language of externally in, in the mm-hmm. covenant, but they're in. And as a result, um, yeah, they, they have a, a very heavy emphasis upon uh, God's dealing with families, as do we. And you're right. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen the same thing in Reformed Baptist churches, um, uh, a very heavy emphasis upon raising the children up, uh, having the children in the worship service. With adults, I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the children are not cast to the side. They're not made to stand right. out in the cold. I've, <laughs> Amen. Yeah, and and that that's almost what it sounds like. So you're just going to raise your kids like they're little pagans. Well, they are by nature children of wrath. But uh, yeah, well, for example, I had a I had someone tell me once, "Well, are you going to teach your child the Lord's Prayer?" And the idea was, well, if you're going to teach them the Lord's Prayer, uh, you, they really have to be a covenant member. And and I think that reasoning is is uh, very faulty. So it's not that Baptists don't find the familial well, – like you just said, Joe, it's not that Baptists don't find the familial category helpful and beneficial and something that is a privilege. But – and I'm quoting Sam Renahan here. He says, looking to the parent-child relationship is a misdirected attempt to understand covenantal membership. So there's a complete difference in my mind between saying the familial institution is important and it is used by God oftentimes as uh, as as secondary means by which a child does come to faith, but to understand the familial relationship and then imply covenantal membership from that familial relationship is problematic from a Baptist perspective. So how does a paedo-baptist respond um, when a person who was baptized as an infant winds up not walking with Christ? They, they walk away from the faith. How do, they, um, how do they deal with that phenomenon? Because I know that it happens. It, it certainly mm-hmm. happens. But how, yeah. how, do, how do they deal with that and how do they explain it? What language do they use? That's a that's a great question. Um, I would say this: uh, in Hebrews, there are passages which seem to imply that those who are members of the covenant can, again, this is from Pado Baptist perspective. Right. Um, there are members of the covenant community who are partaking of. All of the things that are going on, but are still not uh, internal members of the covenant. And so, even though they're brought in by initiation, um, they still have the uh, uh, the necessity of exercising faith. And so, we we are calling our children as a Pado Baptist to walk with the Lord in the light of His Word. We are calling our children to exercise faith and to walk in uh, obedience to God's commands. Now, if the child refuses the promises that are made to him 
objectively, if the if the infant refuses those, or we should say when the infant gets older, uh, if he refuses those, uh, he is seen as an as someone who has committed apostasy, basically. Mm. Uh, so just like in those passages in, in, in Hebrews, um, uh, where people who are members of the covenant community leave, uh, that is how children would be viewed. And in some paedo-baptist argumentation, I know this is very, very important for, for, for example, for Dr. Horton, these passages in Hebrews uh, show that um, – the New Testament church is not a pure church, and so there's a lot of polemics against Baptists who are wanting this pure church that's not even possible, even according to the New Testament standards. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we'll respond to that. Um, yeah. But he finds these very these passages in Hebrew, these warning passages, is very important for showing, even enlightening, how things worked in the Old Testament. For example, with Esau, uh, Esau had a birthright. And he rejected that birthright and became a covenant breaker. Right. And that, that, that's really what somebody who grows up in the church but and is baptized as a child and, and leaves is viewed as. Uh, the promises of God are still objective. They're still absolute. They're, they're still strong and powerful promises, you could say, from a paedo-baptist perspective. Uh, but the child has rejected those promises. Right. So so here again, we see continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Stress. So just mm-hmm. as in the Old Covenant, where you have clearly, especially as we consider the New Testament, uh, clearly you have individuals who are externally in the Old Covenant, but not internally in, mm-hmm. because they lack faith. They carry that same principle over to the New Covenant as well and say the same the same pattern is present here too. So you have exactly right. Uh, you have um, to use the example of Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them were in the covenant, mm-hmm. at least externally. They received mm-hmm. both of them did the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Um, they were God's people in that sense, but only one had faith, and thus was a part of the covenant internally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would agree with, of course, that view uh, in the Old Covenant. The Pado baptist brings that same principle over into the New. Exactly, and I think that's where the disagreement would be. So the, the Pado baptist says, look, the Abrahamic Covenant was a mixed covenant, the Mosaic Covenant was a mixed covenant, and um, the New Covenant is a mixed covenant. And so, so they see even continuity there in, in between the in in the mixture of um, of of those covenants. Uh, and I would say this is actually probably where they would bring up the invisible and visible church distinction, mm-hmm. where there is an invisible, internal, uh, known only to God, election according to grace, and then there is the covenant people, external uh, and visible that is not coextensive with the election according to grace. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, you think about this, uh, Simon Magus in, in Acts 8 uh, was baptized, and it was no um, proof or certain, um, uh, you know, infallible assurance that uh, that he was saved. So even, so from a paedo-baptist perspective, they'll look back at the Baptist and they'll say, well, uh, you 
also have to reckon with the idea that even an adult may not be truly saved and yet be baptized, you know? So, but, but uh, for us, you know, the, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children and the way that we're supposed to reckon our children, you know, as, as Bothing says, there's even more of an assurance that our children are Christians or, or are going to be saved than there is with an adult who makes a credible profession of faith. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a very accurate or good statement to make, but that's what Bobbing says. Yeah, and we do reckon with that fact um, that the church will inevitably be a mixed, um, a, a mixed uh, group: those who mm-hmm. truly have faith and, and those who do not. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate something that Doctor Renahan said at one point that the language of seeking a pure church isn't all that helpful because it will never happen. Mm-hmm. Of course, we are going to baptize those who wind up walking away from Christ. I mean, may it never be, but uh, mm-hmm. it happens. Instead, our objective is to um, have a professing church and to, and to give baptism to those who make a credible – again, that was brought up earlier – a credible profession of faith in Christ. So we, we agree also that mm-hmm. um, there are going to be those who walk away from the faith and, and who walk away from the community of faith. Right. And I think it's a little unfair when people say the Baptists are using the paradigm of an over-realized eschatology. And I, I, I actually found that incredibly helpful when I heard Dr. Renahan say that as well. We're not advocating a pure church because we, we still partake of the old world of flesh that we are fighting against, you know, because we have the spirit. Um, at the same time, you know, those realities of the age that is coming are – impinging upon our present time, and that has to have an effect on our ecclesiology. So, you know, we want to look at Paul's eschatology, his doctrine of the last things, and his pneumatology, his doctrine of the spirit, and let that inform a lot of the ways that we view the spirituality of the church, rather than looking to a genealogical principle of of Genesis um, 17 with the Abrahamic covenant. But and this is where I think Pado Baptists and Baptists just miss each other. Is we are both saying that the church is a mixed body of people, mm-hmm. uh, but the Baptist is pursuing a a true and credible professing people, right. whereas the the Pado Baptist is doing that with adults, but they are also baptizing people who they have no certain assurance by any stretch of the things that are given to us in scripture to judge whether that child will ever come to saving faith in the Lord or not. Um, we are to judge a credible profession of faith. Yeah, so the, the visible church, in our opinion, is inevitably going to be a mixed group. There are going mm-hmm. to be believers and non-believers, but it's by accident, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, whereas in the Pado baptist system, it's guaranteed Yes. It's yes. Gu- it's guaranteed and it's actually a part of the system. It's assumed that there's going to be those who are connected to the um covenant only externally. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, a- a- accidental. I like that. Um oh, I'm trying to remember a Latin distinction that uh somebody made in a book from paedobaptism to credobaptism by Gary Crampton. Do you do you know that that Latin distinction I'm making? Um I do not. Between oh, yeah, I I can't think of it. Yeah, I've heard it before, I think, but I can't bring it to mind. Um, yeah, uh, it's de, de jour and de novo. Hmm. 
uh, by right versus by – oh, man. I'll have to look back at this. I hope we can delete this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can just leave it in. You know, it's, it's – uh, Oh, yeah. Sure. Why go. not? I don't know. Okay, brother. Well, I think this is this has been very helpful. I hope um, uh, to the listener. Um, I, I think we've done justice to the Pado position. Uh, I, I feel that way. I've had mm-hmm. quite a bit of interaction with Pado Baptists, and I, I've read some of their works. And um, I, I would hope that if they listen to this, they'd at least feel honored that we've made an attempt to accurately um, present their view. Is there anything else that you think of that really needs to be said before we bring it to a conclusion? Um, we don't need to get into this much, but I would just add on the, on the tail end that, uh, Jesus idea and view of children in the gospels is also very important. Not so much on a, um, what's the distinction I'm trying to make? Uh, I've heard theologians say this is not a very good argument for infant baptism, just to be fair, but from polemical preaching, done in the United Reformed Church, Jesus' view of children when he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Uh, polemically in preaching, that is used as an evidence for the legitimacy of infant baptism. Now, I, we don't need to get into that, but I just wanted to mention that text. And then a final text, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, where Paul calls the children of believers holy, and he uses the obvious example uh, uh, uh Something that seemingly everybody believes in the New Testament church and that the Corinthian church believes that the children of believers are holy. Therefore, it is okay to have a marriage between someone who has become a believer and and being married to someone who is not yet a believer or is a non-Christian. So 1 Corinthians 7.14 is a very important uh, text too. But I, yeah, I think um, we've covered most of the points here. Yeah, I agree. Those who really believe in having a full-blown children's ministry program also use that passage where Jesus says, do not hinder the children. <laughs> so, Do they really? Wow, okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, to make them sit through boring church services is a way of hindering them from coming to Jesus, <laughs> I guess. Anyway, I know. I, I, know, appre- wow. I appreciate that you bring those up, though, and I think yeah. we will need to probably address the First Corinthians 7 passage, especially um, next time. I think so. I Any think uh, so. good resources that people can go to and further uh, helping to understand uh, the Pado baptist position? Yeah, the the most helpful resources, I think, for um, just anybody in the church to read would be uh, Sinclair Ferguson's treatment in Baptism, Three Views. Uh, that was that was a really good summary of infant Baptist position. Um, in Michael Horton's Systematics, he says that Danny Hyde's Jesus Loves the Little Children is very good. I read that a long time ago. I don't really remember a lot of what he said. It's probably a lot of what we, we've repeated here. Um, but that was another good treatment. Jesus loves the little children. Uh, Dennis Johnson from Westminster has an article that you can find online called Infant Baptism, How My Mind Has Changed. And he grew up Credo Baptist and went uh, Pado Baptist. And then um, a couple more. The Case for Covenant Infant Baptism, which is edited by Greg Strawbridge. That's a little bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, I got the feeling that not every one of the authors was in agreement with each other. Uh, but still, a good place to get a broad spectrum view of infant baptism. And then finally, if you want something a little bit more challenging, 
uh, go to the old Reformed theologians. Go to John Calvin, uh, Bovink, Voss, Burkhoff, um, even Horton, you know, uh, as a new Reformed theologian. There's a book by Brian Holstrom on the silence of the New Testament and infant baptism. Randy Booth, as I've mentioned, uh, Children of Promise. So there's a lot. There is a lot to, to bite off in shoe when it comes to this whole topic, and a lot has been written. But I think I think um, those first three that I mentioned would be the best for just you know just your, somebody who has never read about the topic previously. Okay. Well, good, brother. Well, I hope we didn't make a bunch of Pado Baptists today. Um, but uh, again, <laughs> come back next or come, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Please come back um, for the next episode where we will critique the Pado position, and then for the third of, of of the series here, where we will give a positive presentation of the Credo Baptist uh, position. But I think it's time for us to wrap this one up, Mark. Um, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and to share your story and uh, to help. Um, explain the pedo position today really appreciate it well thanks for having me this was really fun i've never done anything like this in this format before so i liked it thank you for having me great well to the audience i would just say thank you so much for listening to uh, this episode and until next time walk in christ jesus the lord rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving that is colossians 2 6 through 7 adapted a bit. Uh, But do please check back in for these uh, future episodes. Um, We hope you uh, listen in and are edified by them. God bless. Mm -hmm.